Well, good morning. Thanks for, uh, for joining us again this morning. I, I want to um, read to you God's holy and perfect word from Matthew 11, verses 1 through 12. So hear now God's perfect word. Now it came to pass, when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples, that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not offend it because of me. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who, were soft, who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace and your mercy which finds us here. Lord, thank you for those who are outside braving the elements. Thank you for those who are in their homes listening right now. And thank you for those who are healthy enough to be here. Lord, we're so blessed because of you. I pray, Lord, that we would not take that for granted. That in the midst of this backdrop that we read about in John the Baptist, Lord, in, in Matthew pray, Lord, that we would just sit and understand how blessed we are to truly be here to know you, that you've called us into your glorious light. I pray, Lord, that that would carry with it responsibilities that we would take seriously. And in our pursuit of you, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would encourage and challenge each one of us this morning. And I pray that you would receive all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to start off with something pretty serious. Have you guys ever seen the music video by Michael Jackson called Remember the Time? From 1992? No one? Everybody's like, seriously? It's a, a star-studded video back in the day. Uh, begins at the court of Pharaoh, uh, who's being played by Eddie Murphy. Uh, and you can see he's got his queen by his side, and Eddie Murphy can be seen staring at his own reflection as he waited upon his slaves. I think Magic Johnson was in this video. He plays some sort of security. Michael is the, uh, the, uh, the, the joker or entertainment for the court. And they start off so bored, and the queen is sighing as she sits in this lavish comfort, right? And this huge feathered palm branches cooling her off, cooling her skin, now, as we begin this message this morning, I want to keep that image in your mind, okay, this lavish comfort, because I believe 
We are just like that queen or that pharaoh when it comes to our pursuit of Jesus Christ. So this is a challenge for all of us here at Branch of Hope. Matthew eleven twelve 12 states, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Now I understand there being some controversy to this passage because there's primarily two ways of interpreting John. On the one hand, the context could be that Jesus is talking about John the Baptist previously, and after having confronted the confusion of John's disciples, one can take that John the Baptist was confused at his situation in prison and had a crisis of faith. One can make an argument that he wasn't doubting, uh, then why was he sending his disciples with this question of Christ's validity in Matthew 11.3? If Christ was truly the Messiah, then why was John in the predicament that he was in? Why was Christ not delivering John? See, a lot of us put ourselves in that position, thinking, man, I've had that crisis of faith before. See, John had been fervent for the kingdom of God. He had been a man who preached the word in season and out of season. And the reality of Christ's words about John later on, mentioning him as the Elijah that was to come, further proves John's importance to Christ. So my question would be, if John was this man who leapt in his mother's womb when Christ came, who saw the dove of the Spirit of God descending upon Christ at the water immersion, he saw him, he saw his works, then did John really doubt if Jesus was truly the Messiah? I, along with a lot of conservative interpreters throughout the ages, take this to state that John himself was not doubting, but merely sending his disciples who were. John knew. John was radical. We then read in Matthew eleven seven as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? This is a rhetorical question. John was never shaken. He dressed in camel's hair, never shaved because of the Nazarite vow, and ate locusts and honey. He never doubted his role for the coming king, and neither was he doubting this in prison. Jesus continues, What then did you go out in the wilderness to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Again, this was obviously a negative. For John's he dressed in camel's hair, and though he could have had an earthly, easy life, chose to be radically different on account of Christ. We then see the summation of the argument in Matthew eleven nine. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. For he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. See, with the context of John the Baptist, we see him as the supreme example of one who takes heaven by force. That's the way the old Puritans used to describe it, and I think we need to bring that back into fashion. Taking heaven by force, being violent, 
and the ways of him not being broken like a reed because of the winds of teaching of the culture, or the fact that he shook off the cares of the world and pleasures of it even in his dress and meals, and the fact that he was even more than a prophet of the Lord, all proves that John was radical. The context of this passage could be no other, I think, than the fact that it is the violent who take heaven by storm. It's not that there will be violent men coming against heaven, as if heaven suffered violence by those who hated it. I mean, that, that is eisegeting our culture into scriptures. Heaven is not under siege. We have a kingdom that will never be shaken. Psalm 2.1, why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. All we have to do is sit back and look at the reaction of these so-called violent men from the king who sits on high when he says, He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds him in derision. While the nations plot and rage, the Lord has already decreed what will come to pass and has already set his son on the king on Zion, my holy hill. There's no suffering from heaven from men, ever. Heaven is never at stake, and there is no suffering to be had, regardless if men plot and rage and attempt to do anything outside of the will of the Father. Matthew eleven twelve is a text where Christ completely commends the person and ministry of John the Baptist. He was the crier in the wilderness, wilderness to publish with grand design the glory of Christ. And Christ was the herald, the one who proclaimed the praises of John in some regards. Now he does this for many reasons that we have discussed. A light and fickle preacher, someone tossed by the winds like a broken reed, was not the definition of John the Baptist. He was like an oak or cedar planted by streams of living water, immovable, in the midst of the greatest storms, even in prison where he expected his death. And like Paul, his faith was strengthened, no doubt. Matthew 11.12 is powerful in this context and has much to show all of us who are reading this. And primarily my message this morning is to Christians, to us at Branch of Hope. It is the grace of God manifested in our lives that elicits the attitude of this holy violence. This good anger. And again, the Puritans called this exercise holy agony. By the kingdom of heaven, we must understand that it is not meant here about the gloriousness of the heavenly realms where the angels are seated, but the evangelical state of the Christian church right now. Christopher Love states, The kingdom of heaven is in scripture interpreted as a breaking off from the observation of the ceremonial law and a publishing of the gospel by John the Baptist. And finally, the term suffers violence is not meant to be taken as so often the case today as being opposed to or persecution of. This was indeed the case when the gospel was introduced through Christ's person and work, when wicked and evil men of the world were coming against him. But this is a holy violence. When men and women press forward to obtain the grace of the kingdom of God in the here and now, So in other words, it should be taken as a holy violence against our feelings and affections of the flesh that come against the kingdom in our lives and in our ministries. That's the introduction. Now this passage 
this kingdom of heaven suffering violence by violent men is a metaphor taken from warriors who force their, pa- their passageway into the city. Who are the warriors in this church? Who are the warriors at Branch of Hope? These men and women of renown took these places by storm and divided the spoil. The parallel phrase of Matthew eleven twelve is Luke sixteen sixteen. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Or, as the New King James Version says, everyone is pressing into it. Can't you see the importance of this idea of holy violence that I've been talking about? You see, we have lost this idea of pursuing God violently. Now, when I use the term violently, I need you to understand that I'm not talking about violence and brutality or some cruel, sadistic act of barbary. I'm talking about intensity. I'm talking about strength of will, fervency, this absolute fire within us that burns until we cannot be extinguished. A fire for the glory of Christ in our world and a pursuit of holiness in our lives. There is a lackadaisical approach to the things of God that we see in the church these days. That is that of a severe reclining, like reclining in a lazy chair. Or if I can hearken back to the wonderful, amazing example I used in the beginning sitting staring at ourselves like in a mirror like Pharaoh. Mark 1.27, listen to the disciples. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands the unclean spirits and they obey him. See, the shock of the early disciples at the person and work of Christ moved them to such a degree that the world was never left the same. They didn't change it, but Christ in them did. Now, have we become so desensitized to the Word of God that it no longer amazes us here at Branch of Hope? Could we be following a bunch of rules, a bunch of man-made philosophies that have burdened us and created in us this idea that passion for God's kingdom is not necessary. From Colossians 2, I keep getting this clear idea of how Christians do this by imprisoning themselves and ourselves in the world's philosophies. We are almost to a place where the gospel is new again in our culture, particularly in light of the deficiencies of modern philosophy. People need to see the sufficiency of Christ portrayed in our lives and those saints who manifest it rightly, who are fervently like John the Baptist in their pursuit of holiness. John 5.35, he was a burning and shining light in talking about John the Baptist. He was indeed burning. There was a fire, a holy zeal in his preaching and intentionality above all else. He strongly endeavored, forsaking the comforts of this world, to pursue holiness at all costs. John the Baptist also preached the full truth and full gospel. So many times today we hear a watered-down version of the truth. Mark 1.4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. 
John preached the gospel of Jesus Christ perfectly and purely. He did not merely end with the gospel and the good news. He included the duties of Christians in the gospel, tying a life change with his words. See, Jesus, he did not merely end with the gospel. He did the same thing in challenging people to go and sin no more. Or as John 8.11 says, to go now and leave your life of sin. It was always about repenting and turning. Along with receiving the good news, he never worried about his hearer's sensitivity and he did not seek to gear a message around the political correctness or seeker mentality. Matthew 3.2, John preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Quite the contrary to many preachers today, he called out sin and preached repentance. Preachers today, it would seem, want the hearer to understand the gospel apart from the law. Yet they go hand in hand. The gospel is not precious unless sin is horrible to us. Mixing the power of the word of the gospel with something other than the penetration of the law robs the gospel or the good news of its power and its necessity. It therefore becomes something below God. Not a gospel, but a good idea only. And what I found that we in the OPC church really love to do is we love to judge these type of preachers. Yet our actions and our own personal conduct should be put under scrutiny long before we judge these men and women. And yet this gospel, this wonderful and true good news, after a while seems to lose its luster in our minds. We are a generation of self-seekers, professionals in this endeavor. We are violent in seeking ourselves, gratifying ourselves. We're akin to the Israelites too, who went first and were super excited and loved the manna from heaven. But after a time and after months of the same things, they began to disregard it and even became embittered towards it. And as Isaac Ambrose says, many men are Christ and gospel glutted. In so many ways, we are like the Pharaoh or that queen, obsessed with ourselves and with our own creature comforts. This transitions into the reality that many people are forcefully running away from heaven. Jeremiah 8, 6. I listened and heard, but they do not speak aright. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? Everyone turned to his own course as the horse rushes into the battle. And Job 39, 19-25 gives a further description of the horse and how this generation jumps into sin. Have you given the horse strength? Have you clothed his neck with thunder? Can you frighten him like a locust? His majestic snorting strikes terror. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He gallops into the clash of arms. He mocks at fear and is not frightened. He does not, he, nor does he turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the glittering spear and javelin. He devours the distance with fierceness and rage. Nor does he come to a halt because the trumpet has sounded. At the blast of the trumpet, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of captains and shouting. It's a crazy passage talking about this horse 
And in the same way as the horse, Jeremiah states that we too are like that horse, only not towards battle, but towards sin and temptation. We rush headlong into it. We smell it from afar and we can't wait to embrace it. We hear the temptation of sin and from other champions of this particular sin maybe, and we don't even question it, but we rush with every fiber of our being into that sin. We are men and women of violence towards sin. In Jeremiah 9.5, everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. It's a powerful verse in describing this calamity. We weary ourselves in the sin we commit. We perform such atrocities that we are tired from them. We're not weary from conviction. It's just because we're doing them so much because we drink it all in so much. And Proverbs 4.16 nails a head in the coffin for this truth. For they do not sleep unless they have done evil, and their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. Or Romans 1, 29-32, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. We give approval of these things. We encourage one another in these things. Philippians 3.19 Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Not only are we oftentimes fully set to do wrong and evil, not only do we encourage one another in sin, we actually glory in it. We are extremely violent towards sin. We are fervent in it. We have this zeal for it. We're the force of will. We rush headlong into it without thought of anything but our own base desires. Yet such as sin's power over us has from the beginning of our lives, we still struggle once we come to know our precious Lord Jesus Christ. We in the churches, too many who profess Christianity, strive after these things, though we've been freed from them. We pursue things in life with violence as well, though we cloak it under the guise of religion or moderation. We tend to be violent for building our churches, building our locations on the mission fields, perhaps, building ministries. We as people in the churches are still violent towards the philosophies of this world and the culture which has entrenched itself outside of our doors has made a home in our lives as well. We're not violent towards spiritual things. Our violence still remains, however, for unspiritual things at times. Not only do we return to it like a dog returns to its vomit in Psalm 59, 6 and 14 says, Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. Not only are we violent towards sin and going after it, the psalmist suggests that we are like dogs towards it in our hunger. We're hungry for sin, even as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. This should not be. No creature on earth, I would wager, having had several dogs myself, are so attuned to their hunger pains. 
like a dog. We covet, we steal, we lust, we employ all effort in ourselves to go after these sins like a hungry dog. And yet when it comes to hungering after righteousness, after spiritual things that rust or moth cannot destroy, we are like emotionless zombies, barely getting by. Too few of us have a true desire for righteousness, a true hunger for that which lasts. Matthew eleven twelve 12 really challenges everyone, and no one is exempt in this day and age. We see around us today a zeal and a passion, a violence, like I've said, towards furious activity and frenzy, even within the faith. Colossians 2, 20-23 says, Therefore, if you have died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. This strikes to the heart of those who think that they are religious because of outward acts, as if they had any power to save. There are millions today in Christendom who suggest that outward manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit are imperative. They are those who, though very zealous in this cause, have lost sight of what holy violence truly is, and not making people succumb to grace but works. I love deeply many who are in this category, so I say this as gingerly as I can. But this zeal for the gifts of the Spirit is in the same vein as the Judaizers of Paul's day. Holy violence does not lead to greater manifestations of the Spirit. It should primarily lead to holiness. It should lead to Christ-likeness in love, in joy, in peace, in patience, in kindness, in goodness, in faithfulness, in gentleness, and in self-control. These are the manifestations of a holy, violent life. There are many also in our day and in the day of the church age but that believe holy violence does not have a place. It may seem to be archaic at best, something best suited for antiquity, when the growing of the kingdom of God was at its beginning. There are some who would assume that this holy violence and zeal will turn many people off to the gospel, to the things of Christ, for fear of being too strong. Is it dangerous? Is it best to be moderate in all things? Most people will suggest this. I believe this is at the heart of a timid cowardice, as well as stemming from unbiblical and untrue counsel. What would Christ say to this moderation? What is another word for it in principle? It's nothing more than lukewarmness. And Christ has much to say to us, as well to the Laodicean church. The temperate climate of this church age, though some argue is getting warmer, is getting so cold perhaps in our hearts that we are rushing headlong into anything that will make us feel alive. Sadly, our teachers from the pulpit have found ways to minimize Christianity, resolving it to a Santa Claus mentality. At worst, and maybe just have Christ be a portion of your lives at best. 
Honestly, what have you been challenged in lately? When was the last time someone challenged you to your face lovingly, 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 because of your sin? When was the last time you were challenged? Think about this. You maybe shouldn't be doing this. Or have we created an environment in our lives where we can't be challenged? I find it very interesting, and I'm willing to bet you do as well, that during the 1600s, Isaac Ambrose mentioned moderation in religion is accounted a virtue in these times, whereas Jesus Christ would have spewed us out of his mouth. If moderation was accounted a virtue 400 years ago, what would we consider it today? Philippians 4, 5 is an interesting aside. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. The Greek word to describe gentleness is similar with moderation. Yet Paul's argument here is not in regards to holiness, having moderation, but having to do with the things of this world, such as material possessions or eating fast food and sugars. That was, I added that part, but... We're indeed called to be moderate in these things so that they do not grab hold of us and become some sort of idolatrous stumbling block on our way. However, we're definitely not in any case called to be moderate in the course of our pursuit of Christ in heaven. Now let's continue with this line of thought. Lukewarm believers may argue against this holy violence. Surely there are those who would not. Take, for example, those who are outwardly violent in their endeavors for Jesus. But holy violence is not just outward. It's not this approval of men. And sadly, many of these who are visibly violent outwardly are inwardly cold in their closets. When no one sees you, when no one sees me, is there prayer there? Is there devotion Study, heartfelt cries in this deep, moving relationship with Jesus Christ and the Word of God. See, I think a little more emotion and fire for Christ is due in our lives. Let me make mention of those who find themselves maybe impassionate, not passionate for the things of God. Why are we not passionate? Why maybe have we never been passionate for God? Could it be that we do not recognize sin and recognize how terrible and horrid and abase it really is? See, without this truth burned in us, we will never see our need of Christ and the atoning work of the cross. Is If God is not holy to us, And thus, in turn, maybe we never will see a need to be wholly violent for him against ourselves. Paul challenges us in Colossians 3.5 to put to death our members which are on earth. And he goes on to list the things that too many of us struggle with to the point of loss. Other translations say to mortify or to kill these fleshly desires. Now, what is moderate in mortification? 
Help me understand how we justify laziness when it comes to our pursuit of God. I know this is heavy-handed this morning. But we need to consider, at least consider, the high and important calling we have been called to. It can seem like I'm saying that we have to work for something. And we in the Reformed tradition truly steer away from that word, work, like the plague at times. As well, we should most of the time. But none of us, none of this has to do with salvation. For salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen. That is what salvation, this has not to do with salvation. That's not the point of this passage. I have not once mentioned salvation because I am speaking to branch my family. This is for those who have already received reconciliation to God through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm saying that our pursuit of God has grown lazy, moderate, selfish, self-seeking, and lukewarm at times. We forget too easily how mightily loved we are right now, despite what we deserve. We have to remember that. God is not merely loving. God is all loving. And he loves us with a zeal. To the point where he willingly went to death on the cross for every single one of us who has been reconciled to him. And that should move us to pursue him with the same zeal. Or at least a portion of it. We have no idea how blessed we truly are. That forgiveness has made our way possible. Yet slothfulness has enticed us and fed us to where we do not hunger for righteousness. And this is a sad state that we can find ourselves in. We must do whatever we can do to rouse ourselves from this terrible slumber. We see people all around us who rage for sin and temptation. They run fast towards lusts and materialism. Coveting along the way as if it was a style to wear. In our pride, we seek to destroy our souls with such enthusiasm. Yet we will only crawl, will we only crawl towards the throne that alone provides security amidst these storms? Why, since we've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, are we content to sit like the kings and queens of old or the ones we see in the movies, lying in luxury as if we have arrived? Those who do not know Jesus are not ashamed to wear their own clothes running fast to hell, as one writer put it. Yet those who are godly and who are called to be are ashamed in the ways of God. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. Can't we do as much for God as those people who do not know him do for the works of the enemy and sin? When was the last time we have been truly challenged to pursue holiness? To repent? To give up some of these things that we're going to like a dog returns to its vomit? 
to show the world that Christ is enough. You see, I know you know this, but God sent his son to die so that we would live. Now, I struggled a while ago, as you know, with my health, and I haven't brought up my health for a long reason. But I wanted to die. I saw no way out of it. I remember struggling so much, saying, God, please kill me. I had so much pain, so much disease. I remember walking up and down stairs with my eyes closed, hoping that God would trip up my feet so that I would die and break my neck. I remember jumping on a balcony, praying that he would break the balcony, the wood, with my like buck 20 frame so that I could be with him in heaven because I didn't want to live anymore. But God said, Dan, I didn't send my son to die so that you would die. I sent my son to die so that you would live. How are we living for Christ? What are we pursuing? Are we pursuing the things of God? Branch of hope. Are we content with being so consumed with these material things that are kind of confusing us and getting us all worried? Or are we fighting this pursuit, this fight of the faith? Are we running this race set before us with all diligence? That's my challenge this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that you are a God of the impossible who saved us. And Lord, let us not just sit on our laurels and thank you, but praise you and move and to take your call seriously to go and make disciples, but also becoming disciples ourselves. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you that you have saved us and redeemed us. I thank you that you've given us a fight to fight that we're still alive today to fight that fight. I pray, Lord, that there would be many mighty men and women in this church who would take seriously your call and to run your race, to raise your standard and move forward in this battle. For we are victorious and we have already won. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.